are there. Here we go. Okay, so the first question is from Crystal Maynard. And she asked, do I make a distinction between awareness, consciousness, mind, and Buddha nature? And the answer is absolutely yes. And she goes on to ask, if so, what are the distinctions and the relationships amongst these four? And that's good. I will address that. So perhaps to look at mind first, and I am very much a non-dualist when it comes to the uh, mind-matter dualism that actually pervades uh, people's thinking normally, and that uh, Rene Descartes is very famous for having articulated so uh, clearly. Um, Non-dualism can take the form of materialistic reductionism that says no mind and matter aren't different because mind is just something that matter does when it reaches a certain level of complexity. And then there are the uh, other kind of reductionists who uh, are, are known as idealists, and they, they're the ones that want to reduce everything to mind say there's no such thing as matter, that uh, matter is just a story the mind makes up to explain its experience. And there is a third kind of non-duality, and this is, this is how I see and experience things, which is that neither mind as such nor matter as such exists. There is something, the, the call it suchness. Um, there is something that appears as matter when you look at it in one way and appears as mind when you look at it as another way. Um, and of course, the only way you can look at mind is when you experience it through consciousness. Uh, but mind, obviously, is if, if uh, mind is merely an, act, uh, an aspect of one stuff of which everything consists. Uh, when you look at it from the outside, you see matter. When you look at it from the inside, you see mind. So um, mind, of course, on an individual basis, consists of consciousness and uh, unconscious mind, and also what we might call the, the subconscious, that part of the unconscious that borders on the conscious uh, uh, on consciousness and um, which it, the contents of which can become conscious uh, given the right circumstances or sometimes the right conscious intentions so that's that's the place of mind in the bigger picture now uh, awareness and consciousness uh, are two different things, and awareness is the much larger of the two. Because uh, a distinction that I didn't put in the book, that I actually did and took out, is that uh, awareness is a very broad term, and it includes both unconscious and conscious awareness. What is unconscious awareness? 
Well, we are constantly assimilating information at an unconscious level. You know this, if you reflect on it. Um, you you've probably have reflected on it, and you probably know this um, quite clearly through uh, through experiences that you've had that that strongly reveal that you uh, not only are assimilating information that you're not conscious of, you're actually acting on information that you're not conscious of. And I call that unconscious awareness. So my definition of awareness is the registration in any form of information on an entity then that information can be acted upon or it can be stored and if it's stored it can be acted upon at some later time it's the imprint of interactions with other aspects of of um in reality, the, the wholeness that that entity is a part of. So awareness is much, much larger and encompasses, encompasses much, much more than consciousness. I speak in, uh, in TMI of the field of conscious awareness. And there's the distinction. Conscious awareness is that very small part of awareness of which you are conscious. Now, what does it mean to be conscious? Uh, the, the best definitions, uh, definition of consciousness that has been generated so far, we have to attribute to uh, the uh, original thought of Thomas Nagel and a paper he wrote on what is it like to be a bat. And um, this has been um, this has been worked with by people in the area of consciousness studies for several decades now, and it is essentially the definition of consciousness is that subjectivity, that subjective experience. Uh, the way that Nagel put it was, "What it's like to be something." What is it like to be a bat? What is it like to be you? It's that subjectivity. That's what consciousness is. And that's the only thing that um, consciousness is a very small part of mind. Uh, if I go back to the definition of mind, let me ex expand on that a little bit we experience our individual minds. But if, uh, as I said, uh, in a non-dual reality where what appears to be mind and what appears to be matter are just two different ways of seeing one stuff, then um, one of the things that I see everywhere is that there, um, there is a parallel in mind for whatever we find when we study uh, matter and energy, which means that the individual mind that you experience, my consciousness, and the things that I know by inference about my unconscious mind, are not distinctly separate from your mind or anybody else's mind. But there is something 
about our individuality that acts as a filter, and that's necessarily so, because otherwise you might walk out the door in the morning and you go to work to somebody else's job. Um, but there is, but all of what we experience as individual minds are actually interconnected. And there are a number of parallels of this that we find in the, in the material universe or in the physical universe. But probably the one that um, it, it is most directly analogous is what's known as quantum entanglement. And I'm not going to say any more about that. But uh, mind is vast and interconnected. And one of the th unique things that uh, the stuff of mind matter does is allow for the establishment of individual minds as portions of the whole. So back to an, an individual, um, their consciousness is a small part of their individual awareness, which is in turn a small part of the awareness that uh, pervades the universe. Consciousness, um, consciousness has come to be way, way overrated. Uh, people make it into something that it's not. Um, people seeking for some kind of um, something that is continuous, that they can identify with as themselves and so on and so forth, almost inevitably, if, if they examine everything else and they see, as the Buddha guided them to in uh, uh, examination of the five aggregates, they very easily come to the conclusion that there is no self in four of the aggregates, but there's a strong tendency to want to make consciousness into something that is continuous and unique uh, and very special. And uh, this has led to, in consciousness studies, the idea of the hard problem of subjectivity. Rather than trying to understand subjectivity as a phenomena that is an inevitable part of uh, the nature of awareness and that universal process, which our individual subjective consciousness is a special case of, um, they want to reify consciousness into something very special. And that has been incredibly confused uh, further by the uh, Tibetan notion of Rigpa, which people always want to make into consciousness, which um, to which it is quite related, but Rigpa really refers more to the um, uh, quantum entanglement-like aspect of uh, mind uh, than it does to consciousness. Consciousness is information exchange that takes place in our minds. Information exchange is taking place throughout the universe at every level. When it takes place in our mind, because of some of the unique characteristics of our mind, primarily that of uh, information storage in the form of, uh, of memory, both very short-term memory, short-term memory, longer-term memory, things like this. This creates the reflexive activity 
of consciousness that gives rise to subjectivity. So there really is no hard problem there. So, but that's what consciousness is. And so to go back, to go to Buddha nature, what is Buddha nature referring to? Uh, the Tathagata Garbha. Uh, Garbha is like an embryo or a seed. The, tar, the, the Buddha nature, Buddha nature, I see and experience as something that is closely akin to mind and is simul, it, it is, uh, um, <laughs> what is the word? Um, synonymous, really, with, with suchness, with um, isness, with um, whatever other words that you want to attach to it. Um, and it is something that is, of course, in every one of us. And so uh, from that perspective, it's a really useful concept. What are we doing in our practice? We're trying to, we're, we're trying to reveal, bring, bring to the fore the Buddha nature, which is in all of us and in everything. And so, um, yeah. That's the distinctions and the relationships I make between those four. And Crystal, I don't know if you've come in since I started talking or not, but no, it doesn't look like you have. But uh, I hope that I've succeeded in answering your question. Um, is there anybody who um, would like any clarification on anything what I said uh, that I said? I mean, this is pretty deep metaphysical stuff, so we don't want to spend the whole time talking about it. But yes, please. You put your hand up. Um, you you never mentioned um, emptiness or uh, dependent origination. Wouldn't that be what uh, ultimately um, Buddha nature is as yeah. well? That the whole entity of the close and everything is yeah. uh, an aspect of emptiness, as is Rigpa, a positive sense of emptiness in terms yeah. of being bright. That so would would you agree with that or I would agree with that completely. I, I intentionally avoided using the word emptiness because um, it is probably the most misunderstood term within the Buddha Dharma, uh, mm -hmm. and and I didn't want to get into. But absolutely, um, emptiness, suchness, Buddha nature. These are all terms that are ad addressing a, exactly the same thing, uh, and, and as is as Rigpa. And um, yes, I, I, I would agree to you with you that if we wish to categorize them in that sort of way, we'd say, yeah, Rigpa is the positive version of um, emptiness, which is the, uh, the negative version, so. Voids, kind of. And as a neuroscientist and as a neurologist uh, speaking to you, um, so much of, of perception is really, I love it because the Buddha's, uh, the Buddhist sort of analysis of perception very much fits in with this whole model of um, dependent origination and emptiness because that we don't tell our eyes to see, we don't tell our ears to hear. We, you know, so that there's this, uh, 
these things happen in response to one another, our presence or, uh, and then the, 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 the stimulus or however, you know, in terms of quantum theory, how that comes about. So I think it's absolutely fascinating and how it actually, what modern science confirms everything that was really, you know, from the beginning known in that way. That's right. So I love that. And I just wanted to add that, but knowing that, you know, of course your background is like that too. Yes, well, thank you very much for bringing that in. And, and I should say something about um, dependent origination. Uh, and, and just to clarify, dependent, when I say dependent origination right now, I'm not referring to the links of dependent origination, which is an application of the concept of dependent origination to the specific mental processes that take place. I'm referring to dependent origination in the larger sense. Essentially, the causal interdependence of everything, the mutual causality of everything, and therefore the total interpenetration of everything, which means that dependent origination properly stood, understood, um, dependent origination properly understood is... Uh, the probably the best description of suchness that we have that there exists nothing outside of this realm of causality but this is not the kind of linear causality that our puny little human brains like to play with this this is a a much uh deeper and more interpenetrating causality it is the mutual causality wonderful um, book on uh, uh, general systems theory and mutual causality in Buddhism by um, um, Joanna Macy um, so yeah the, and what the Buddha had to say uh, to Ananda when Ananda said um, dependent origination, what a wonderful teaching, what a, and, and so clear and so easy to understand. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda. To understand dependent origination is to understand the totality of the Dharma. So, all right, let's move on and look at some of these. Sorry? Do you think that understanding that better, like reading that book, would improve the practice in any way or is just theoretical it's uh no i you know i i first read it many many years ago and it had the effect of clearing away some of the uh obscurations in the form of misinterpretations of reality that were standing in my way of seeing more clearly what was happening in my practice so uh I so definitely had a very beneficial effect on my practice because it it wiped out some of the some of the assumptions that I had acquired in my life that are just in total contradistinction to to the facts, and so it's it's it can be very eye opening. So I do recommend it. So Joel Nicholson. Uh, thank you for your well wishes, Joel. Um, uh, wondering, is it possible to progress through the 10 stages and become awakened through using walking meditation as the main practice? If this is possible, how could this path 
potentially differ from using a sitting practice. Um, for instance, are people able to experience purifications, jhanas, etc., while walking? Well, this is something I think that could stand a lot more explanation uh, or exploration. I meant to say, not explanation. Uh, uh, some of the medications that I'm on for uh, chemotherapy cause me to start off with the right word but finish with the wrong word. I meant to say exploration. Um, my experience of walking meditation is that um, I, I, you come to a place where your meditation begins to, uh, the, the, there no longer is the line between your formal practice and your everyday life. And uh, from the very beginning, walking meditation is, is bridging that gap. Now, all of the mental skills that we develop in stages one to six can certainly uh, be developed uh, through uh, walking meditation. I don't know of anybody who's done that. I don't know what unique kinds of problems might arise in, uh, as a part of that. But uh, um, from my understanding and from a theoretical perspective, uh, I don't see any uh, any of those problems that couldn't be overcome, and somebody could develop the um, the skill base. Now, as for the, these other things, can you experience purifications? Well, as a matter of fact, people do experience purifications outside of meditation. Uh, you know, when when they've been meditating, sometimes sometimes the purifications don't. Uh, either don't completely arise or don't uh, get completed during sitting practice. And uh, they can come up as a part of walking practice or they can come up as a part of uh, what's happening in your daily life. Um, the, the idea of a jhana while you're walking um, is a very interesting idea. Um, basically, the there is a sensory motor counterpart to um, to jhana, which is that's when you've mastered a motor skill to the degree that your body does it completely automatically and completely perfectly. And the interesting thing about that kind of, of um, perfected sensory motor behavior is that uh, you can uh, carry on a conversation about something totally unrelated while you're doing it. Now, the interesting thing about jhanas is that it's much the same way, except that it's not involving the sensory and motor systems. It's involving uh, consciousness, uh, awareness, and attention. And therefore, it would be impossible to be in jhana while doing something else. Now, uh, just as a theoretical possibility, I mean, would it be possible to reach a state where you could have simultaneously <clears throat> enter into, uh, I mean, what jhana is, is it's, it's, it's like that sensory motor state that happens by itself. It's a state you enter into. It's a very unique mental state that <clears throat> is, uh, it, it, it's a flow state. 
it's different than normal state of consciousness and the things that can happen in normal consciousness many of them such as volitional activity can't happen in jhana but interesting thing to speculate could somebody develop the sensory motor skills to walk and do walking meditation while completely separate from that their conscious mind their attention their awareness and even the important aspects of their unconscious awareness are all uh, locked into that groove of, of jhana interesting thing to speculate on i don't know the answer so in terms of the larger question um back to what i said the idea could somebody actually progress through the stages of an adept um, uh, uh, doing walking meditation only and it's a very intriguing question uh, have have I, I i can't say I can say that I can imagine it as a possibility, but that doesn't mean that it's true. Can someone become awakened uh, through using walking meditation? Well, people have become spontaneously awakened without ever doing any practice at all. Um, for people who do practice, very often insight arises uh, when walking rather than when sitting. Um, and sometimes it arises when uh, they're doing something completely different as well. So, so the experiences of insight and the experiences of awakening are not dependent upon being sitting, uh, sitting, uh, doing a formal meditation practice. Um, those greatly facilitate that. And of course, uh, when you're doing those practices, it becomes much more likely that insight and awakening are going to happen doing formal practices, but they could happen as easily in walking as in sitting. So, Joel, I'm not sure that uh, I, I, well, I, I feel like I've answered your question uh, completely. I, I hope that I have. And I hope that to the satisfaction of those of you who are listening, David Carpenter, on and the mind illuminated in your discussion of the body scan, you discuss the traditional meditation on the elements, in particular the wind element, and say that Tibetans call the breath-related sensations that arise from this practice inner winds. As I'm sure you know, these inner winds are what is called prana in Sanskrit, yes. Could you share your thoughts on connections between this awareness cultivated through the use of the body scan at stage five and the cultivation of awareness of prana in Indian yoga practices and qi in Chinese practices such as Tai Chi and Qigong. How are they related to the phenomenon of piti? Uh, can one experience piti? Well, I, I'll deal with those other questions afterwards. Um, the, the process of body scanning in which you allow your mind to become aware of these of this prana of these inner winds is very very similar to what happens with tai chi and qigong um, in in the practice of the 10 stages this is more of a 
peripheral thing. It's a way of um, using a, it, it serves two purposes, using the phenomena of prana, which um, for whatever reasons uh, in, uh, the norm, in an ordinary person uh, have become completely invisible, making them visible. And the other purpose that serves is that by becoming aware of these and learning, learn, becoming familiar with them and learning to some degree to work with them, um, they, you, don't have, uh, you don't have the sudden uh, arising of uh, awareness because uh, so much energy has been liberated in your brain in your mind due to unification of mind that you have you have energetic experiences that are um, uh, very very difficult to deal with um, it's not an area of expertise of mine and when people have trouble with um, the PT experiences with the with these these energetic experiences uh, I usually refer them to uh, tai Chi, Qigong, or um, uh, a, a good yoga teacher who uh, focuses on yoga, on the energetic aspects of yoga rather than simply, simply treating it as, a, as a, another form of physical exercise. Um, so they're, they're, they're very much the same thing. Now, in uh, this Kundalini yoga, and that's a That's a, a, a different kind of practice altogether, where the focus is entirely on these energies and on the develop. The, rather than becoming aware of them and learning to work with them and use them, like as you do in Tai Chi and Qigong, uh, Kundalini Yoga carries this to a whole new level. Um, ordinary Hatha Yoga that that properly incorporates the understanding of the energetic component together with the physical um, doesn't go to that extreme degree and like I say the whole the whole subject of these energetics is something that I understand and use within the context of the fact they inevitably arise they are a part of PT as the mind unifies this energy this uh, a tremendous amount of energy becomes um, evident, and um, uh, you can't help but notice this energy. And sometimes it produces some very uh, unpleasant effects, especially if there are um, blockages to the natural flow of that energy, or if to the degree that that energy is flowing through the quote channels which are not appropriate to it. Um, so let's look at some of the other parts of this question. Um, can one experience PT at stage five? Um, yes, and, and this does happen. Sometimes when once people become aware uh, of prana, that um, the mind unifies around this experience strongly enough to generate even more prana. And that phenomenon uh, uh, then becomes much more intense because they're experiencing um, unification. The unification is specifically around the experience of, of 
PT usually at this stage. But this is the kind of person who is probably, um, they are going to do, go one of two directions. They're going to be one of those people for whom the, uh, uh, the, the, P, the energetic aspect of PT uh, becomes problematic and more difficult to manage, or they're going to become one of these people for whom it is so easy, it comes to them naturally, you know, they can uh, identify the, uh, any uh, obstructions to the free flow of, of energy in their body, and they're going to be able to work with it quite effectively. Um, so David says, I frequently experience energetic flows in my body while sitting, but I'm just at stage four, just starting to do the body scans recommended for stage five. So that's, um, uh, David, you're one of those people that I just spoke about. What I highly recommend is that you don't, um, don't set out to pursue uh, an increase in the intensity of, uh, of these pranic experiences. Rather, let them develop naturally. And the most important thing is for to is the, there's really two the, there is a kind of uh, movement of the prana to which is from the core to the periphery and back to the core, a circulation of prana, and you can experience that as extending beyond the body through through the soles of your feet and the palms of your hands and the top of your head and certain other parts of your body where you're not only experiencing the flow of, of prana from, from the core to the periphery but beyond into the, into the universe and then back into the body. Work with those and uh, then when the time comes that you start experiencing the rising of, uh, of prana uh, in uh, what's referred to as the rising of kundalini, it will be a, a much more pleasant and manageable experience. So that's the best advice that I can give to you, and uh, that's where I see that you are. Um, and uh, Magnus also gives reference to uh, guided meditation on the four elements. So. Could I just uh, summarize and make sure I'm clear on something? Yes, please. Um, Basically, for stage five practice, the main goal there is just making these energy flows visible, just becoming aware of them. Well, and that's, I mean, how did, could you repeat about how it fits into this, the 10 stage process? Sure. At stage five, actually, the goal is to make a significant jump in the conscious power that you have in, in uh, the, um, the in, in intensity and the clarity uh, of, your, uh, of your attention and, and your peripheral awareness. That's the end. Um, the most important thing about the body scanning is not the discovery of the um, uh, energy movements or of the breath re here we refer to them simply as breath related movements but rather this looking for them the searching for them and searching for them the uh, finding them 
and then uh, finding them more and more. These are, are wonderful uh, and very, uh, in, in the long run, very beneficial and useful things to happen. But you can complete stage five and completely fulfill the purpose of the body scan at stage five without ever actually having succeeded in discovering these because uh, the, it's an end to, it's a means to an end. And the end is that complete overcoming of subtle dullness and the actually the, the ratcheting up of the power of, uh, uh, of consciousness, both, both attention and awareness. Thank you. You're most welcome. Yes. Let's see. Adrian, are the degrees of intensity of craving or the hindrances in general? If so, are this degrees uh, related with the amount of conditioning that is beyond their manifestation? Uh, Adrian, I would think that this would be something that would be pretty self-evident unless, unless perhaps you're tending to apply some much more restrictive uh, and a narrow definition of craving and the hindrances. Um, I believe we all experience that craving uh, arises in a, uh, a, 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 a vast uh, uh, number of degrees uh, craving of the extremely intense or, or mild or anywhere in between. And the same, th same thing with the hindrances in, in general, doubt, uh, uh, worry and remorse, uh, you, you know, that the, they do occur in degrees. And yes, you're absolutely right. Conditioning is one of the factors that uh, has to do with the intensity of craving. Now, there's an interesting thing about craving that when you, in, the more you indulge in craving, the stronger craving becomes. But for many things, it's interesting. It reaches a peak, and then it falls off. Uh, we might compare this to what happens with various forms of addiction. There's all kinds of addictions. And craving will increase the more you, the more you indulge in the, the, uh, the gratification or satisfaction of a particular craving, the more intense that craving becomes up to a point. And then you reach a point where the degree of satisfaction that it produces diminishes. And very often the sort of ordinary experience is that um, the, uh, that craving and the indulgence in that craving will tend to pass away, but the craving uh, in, in its a native form uh, remains strong. So what you do is you look for a different object of craving. Um, now addiction is an interesting example. Uh, exactly the same process uh, happens. Um, whatever it is that produces that addiction, and um, you could be you can be addicted to. There's a wonderful book about addiction. By Gabor Mate. Um, I, I believe the name of the book is Hungry Ghosts. Anyway, and he talks about his own addiction to uh, purchasing music 
CDs. So you can become addicted to all kinds of things. What what uh, is different about addiction from the the peaking and the disappearance and then the looking for something else? Um, basically, what's happening with craving and with with addictions both, but um, let's use the example of a chemical addiction like opiates, is there are the release of neurotransmitters of a wide variety that uh, produce uh, a pleasant sensation, that produce the satisfaction that um, the craving is, is searching for. And um, there's a hit of dopamine that's released. An interesting thing is that the dopamine, uh, which is uh, highly addictive, actually happens as a part of the craving itself. It may also be a very important part of the uh, fulfillment of the craving. Um, for example, with uh, cocaine, there are massive dopamine releases associated with it. But the most interesting thing is that we found that the experience of craving produces a dopamine release. And that's why, now this is something that people discover during stream entry, uh, whether they articulate in these terms or not, but they discover that there is a craving for craving itself. And that's because of this dopamine release. Now, addictions are where something continues. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth, for that message. Um, addiction produces... Um, as I say, the, re, uh, the release of, of powerful positive neurotransmitters and, and dopamine is a principal one of those. But the brain, of course, adapts to that. And as it adapts to that, the, uh, uh, whatever it is you're addicted to, you need more and more of it to achieve the same effect. Uh, and of course, the difference between that and most of our mon more mundane objects of craving is that there's a limit to, to the more that is possible. And that's where you've reached the peak and now the satisfaction that follows begins to diminish steadily. And that's where craving shifts to, to something else. Um, but yeah, back to, back to the question. Uh, and this is really what, this is really one of the important aspects of what uh, karma is all about. Um, the more you seek to satisfy your cravings, the stronger your cravings become. And even when a particular craving no longer becomes satisfactory, the craving shifts to something else. And when that becomes non-satisfactory, it shifts to something else. So the, to indulge in craving is to make craving stronger. Craving arises out of self-attachment. So to indulge in craving is to increase the attachment to, uh, uh, to self-attachment. And so the Buddha taught, um, taught he, he redefined karma, and he taught karma as intention. And to look at your intentions. If your intentions are based in craving, they are unwholesome. They will have the effect of further enslaving you to craving and, uh, and increasing the power of the attachment to self, which to become awakened, you, you have to overcome. So it's moving you further away from awakening.
So that's an unwholesome intention. When you deny craving, you weaken the power it has on you and you weaken the attachment to uh, self from which it arose. And so this is, uh, in general, all craving is conditioned uh, positively and negatively in a variety of ways. But the most important aspect of conditioning, of craving, is that that's described through the practice of virtue and through the application of the idea of karma as intention. You create who you are in the future uh, through your intentions, through your karma. Karma doesn't determine directly what happens to you. It does so indirectly because you do stupid things and you get in trouble because of of, um, uh, the things that you've done. What, what karma does is determine who things happen to and how you respond to those things when they happen to you. So that's, that's craving. Now, apparently, I missed a question from, uh, from Flo. And let me look and just see where, there it is. Okay, yes. Thank I you. See. I'm sorry, Flo. So... Was there somebody that was starting to say something before I was about to switch? No. Okay, good. Great. All right. So Flo says, there are meditation retreats where, depending on their progress, people may be asked to stay awake for 24 or 48 hours or even longer. What is your opinion on this? What is the purpose? In which situations is it useful, and how can you tell whether or not you're pushing yourself too hard? When is it better to persevere? When is it better to be kind to yourself and rest? Do you have any advice for people who are planning to participate in such a retreat? Well, my beginning uh, experience with Buddhist meditation, I had previously done uh, TM and uh, uh, various Advaita practices, Uh, But my first experience with Buddhist meditation, um, our final sit ended with a bell at midnight. Our first sit began with a bell at four in the morning. And I did that. I, I, I did that kind of meditation for over a year in retreats. And the uh, what is my opinion of this? I would never, ever do that or ask anybody to do anything remotely like that again. What is the purpose? I don't know. No one's ever explained it to me, and I certainly did not discover any purposes in it through my own experience. So I have no idea in which situations it is useful. Um, When you're sitting there alternately hallucinating and falling asleep, feeling absolutely miserable, um, and that was my experience, uh, that's how you can tell when you're pushing yourself too hard. And that's why I stopped doing that. Um, I have no idea when it's better to persevere because I've never persevered in that kind of sleep deprivation thing. And I have no idea what purpose it serves. My... um, you know, I, 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 my advice for people who are planning to 
participate in such a retreat. My most honest advice would be, forget it. Um, but uh, I don't think that's fair to the people that, that teach this and use this. And it perhaps has some tremendous validity that I was never able to discover. So the advice I'd be more likely to give is that uh, I'm the wrong person to ask. You need to go to the person who you're planning to do this kind of retreat with and get an answer to these questions. What is the purpose? And what makes it useful? And in what situations is it useful? Those are exactly the questions you should ask that person. And then you should decide whether or not you want to do that retreat. <laughs> So that's that's what I can say about that. Uh, horrible experience. Um, you know, if anybody ever finds the answer to uh, why it's useful, I, it would satisfy a curiosity of mine. But I still don't think I'd be willing to try it. <laughs> uh, I've been meditating for three to four. I would now Daniel here. I've been meditating for three to four months. This week I had a remarkable session. I was in stable attention and awareness of the breath right from the get-go. Then I felt happy about being able to meditate and the great feeling it gives me. Suddenly a strong tingling sensation came from the back of my neck, grew over my head, my whole upper body. With it, became, with it came a profound and overwhelming feeling of happiness and bliss about nothing in particular. My breathing got heavy and I shed some tears of joy. The whole experience lasted for a few minutes. The rest of the sit was great as well. And there was even a second less intense wave of bliss. So you had had a, uh, you've only been meditating three to four months and uh, you've had a wonderful experience of uh, what it can be like when you make that transition into uh, tranquility that's characteristic of stage nine. This is something that happens not infrequently that uh, people uh, will uh, have meditation experiences that correspond to a much more advanced stage. Um, and and they're, they're wonderful because they, uh, they're very inspirational as you know what uh, now is possible. You, you know where this process is leading. Now you ask, uh, how can I achieve this again? Um, Daniel, the best way to achieve this again is just to keep on practicing to develop the skills that allow you to repeat this uh, intentionally, that bring you to the place where you can uh, experience this uh, development of shamatha that usually only happens at stage nine. You know, and uh, the worst thing that you can do right now for your practice is to begin to pursue these, try to make it happen again. If it's going to happen again, it will happen again, because what happened is all the right conditions came together by accident. And you don't know how you precipitated that accident. Um, if you keep practicing diligently as you were, and I'm presuming that you were practicing according to the instructions, then it's, it's more likely that it will happen. 
but don't seek it out. If it happens a second time, if it happens a second or third time, say, wow, this is wonderful. I'm so happy that sometimes this happens, but I'm, I, I know not to be attached to it. I know not to waste my time trying to make it happen. The way to make it happen is to develop the skills through stage six and then move into the practices of an adept practitioner. And then I guarantee you it will happen and it will happen whenever you want it to. So uh, I'll just have a quick check. Is, is Daniel here? Um, nope, don't see any Daniel. So. Uh, anyway, Daniel, I hope when you listen to the recording of this, that, that this was uh, what you needed to hear. Phil, the concept of stable attention is clear. Describe the distinguishing characteristics of access concentration, one-pointedness, and absorption, i.e. compare and contrast these terms. Okay. Um, Access concentration is where you have you have stable attention. Okay, you have exclu uh, exclusive attention, or at least you're approaching exclusive attention. There are very light uh, light jhanas. The access concentration for which uh, is. Uh, not as stable as the concentration that you develop later. But when you have sufficient um, stability of concentration, that you have what I call exclusive attention. Now, the term one-pointedness, really don't like that because people misunderstand it. One, people understand one-pointedness, and there's a lot of things that have been written and that you'll read that describe one-pointed this way. You're totally you have uh, single-pointed attention on a particular meditation object, and there's nothing else in your consciousness. And that is the worst place that you could end up. Believe me, I, it, it is, is not a good place to be. What is not explicitly mentioned in the jhana factors, um, but, uh, but I'm going to uh, tell you about a sutta, there must be, in order to have a successful jhana, there must be powerful mindfulness. There must be powerful introspective awareness. Now, um, if you look at the description of the jhanas, you'll see that in first jhana, there is, uh, there is directed and sustained attention. Well, let me digress a little bit. There are people that take Vitaka and Vichara and they translate it in all kinds of absurd nonsense ways. Thought and discrimination. Uh, the most recent one I've seen is directed and sustained effort. This is nonsense. In terms of consciousness, the only thing you have that you can direct and sustain is attention. There is absolutely no question that Vitaka and Vichara refer to directed and sustained attention. So, you have, you have stable attention. You have directed, sustained attention. Uh, you can call it one-pointedness, but only if you think of it in terms of uh, 
of exclusive attention coupled with powerful introspective awareness, meaning that you're in a state of mindfulness. Now, the sutta I'm referring to is one where the Buddha is having a conversation with uh, a Brahmin. Now, the practice of the jhanas is something that predates the Buddha. You'll remember his very first teachers taught him the advanced jhanas, and he rejected them as a path to enlightenment. So he was speaking with a, a Brahmin who was familiar with jhana practice. And uh, the Brahmin was asking, you know, I, he, he said, I don't really understand how, uh, how jhana can lead to uh, uh, awakening. And, you know, so venerable sir, can you please explain to me how jhana can lead to, how absorption of jhana can lead to awakening. And the Buddha's reply is, when jhana is practiced with mindfulness, it leads to awakening. So here is where he points to it directly. The classic formulation of directed and sustained attention, joy, and happiness uh, as the jhana factors um, doesn't include that, but it's, it's implicit in it. So. Um, that's the, the distinguishing characteristic of access concentration is sufficiently stable attention and sustained, powerful, introspective awareness. And that involves a sufficient degree of unification of your mind that you will experience some joy and, and sukha that's associated uh, with the joy that arises out of the joy. And when you experience that, you know that you're in access concentration. And now, uh, if, uh, now you can uh, slip into that groove that I talked about earlier. You can slip into the groove of jhana. Now, um, when, you, when you look at the four jhanas, I started to say this earlier, you see that directed, before my digression, you see that directed and sustained attention is only present in the first jhana. So what form does consciousness take then in the second, third, fourth jhanas? What form does consciousness take in the formless jhanas? Because attention is gone. How? Well, the answer, I think should be self-evident. The form that it takes is this powerful awareness. And because, depending on the depth of the jhana that you're in, there will be what's, read, what's described as a withdrawal of the mind from the senses. So in the, deeper mind, in the deeper jhanas, your mind is quite withdrawn from the senses. And so there, therefore the mindfulness that you experience and the consciousness that you experience in jhanas two and further is is that of a very of metacognitive introspective awareness and that is the awareness that you have of joy and sukha in uh, of pt and sukha in second jhana of the falling away of the awareness of the agitation and the energetic manifestations of pt into the much more calm sukha of third jhana. 
you are metacognitively, introspectively aware that your mind in a state of joy has generated this powerful sukha and you dwell in that sukha until the sukha itself seems to be uh, the, lacking something and there, there is a bliss and there is a peace that lies beyond the sukha that you, your mind begins to tend towards and then you move into the fourth jhana. Now from the fourth jhana, with this powerful metacognitive introspective awareness, you can do all kinds of, of wonderful things. Um, Shinzen describes one of the things you can do there as the um, uh, exploration of the uh, realms of, uh, how does he put it, uh, um, magic and mystery, I think, or, or something like that. Um, and certainly you can explore all of those things that uh, Jung was talking about as the uh, uh, collective unconscious. Uh, you can do the practices that are associated with the cities. You can do all of this in this absorbed state of, um, of metacognitive introspective awareness. Let me back off from what I said. You are not doing this. You are not in jhana to the degree that there is anyone there who can do anything, okay? And I know a lot of people describe things as jhana that are not jhana. When you're in jhana, it's like when you're in a flow state doing some worldly activity. Say you've been learning to juggle, and you get to that place where ah, you can keep all the balls in the air, but the thing is you can't think about it. You can't, you're not doing it. It's just happening. It's a flow state. John is that kind of flow state. When you're juggling those balls, if you think about it, if you even have a moment of, wow, I'm doing this, what happens? You miss the ball. Now, eventually, it's a sensory motors type of uh, flow state. So eventually, you can get to the place where you can be a juggler and you can be talking about uh, metaphysics with somebody while you're still juggling, keeping all the balls in the air. But of course, consciousness isn't, isn't like that. So Jhana is a place where you get to fourth jhana, and depending on the intentions that you go into the jhana with, you can have, you can do all kinds of weird and wonderful things. But uh, one thing about jhana is, if you find yourself engaging in volitional activities, you've either come out of the jhana or you weren't in jhana to begin with. Um, so um, that's the characteristics of access concentration. And jhana, and, and I really wanted to go into that degree of detail because I just keep coming across. Um, you know, it used to be when people talked about jhana, um, they understood it as the shift into this state, and then we ended up having big debates about about the uh, um, the really deep and difficult to attain jhana described in the Vasudhimaga, and the uh, uh, kinds of jhana that's described over and over again in the suttas. And so people were calling it the sutta jhanas and, and the Vasudhi Maga jhanas. And there was the argument that the only real jhanas are these really deep Vasudhi Maga jhanas. I used to believe that till I did a retreat with Lee Brasington. But it turns out that there are all kinds of jhanas and that even the Buddha himself 
use the word jhana sometimes synonymously with meditation that wasn't describing a flow state. What's happened more recently since that debate between the Visuddhimagga jhanas and the so-called sutta jhanas, by the way, in the suttas, the Buddha describes jhanas of every depth you can conceive of, including those in the Visuddhimagga, so it was a false distinction anyway. But nowadays, I'm discovering people describing all kinds of things as jhana that are not the kind of unique flow state, that special state the mind can enter into. And so now I'm learning that when somebody starts talking to me and they say, well, I enter jhana, and I say, um, please, don't use the word jhana, just describe to me what the experience was like. Because when somebody says jhana nowadays, I have no idea what they're talking about anymore. So, <laughs> thought I'd mention that. Can metta practice assist in achieving and sustaining these the uh, mindset? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, in the descriptions of the jhanas, there uh, there are jhana practices that are based on on uh, metta. There are jhana practices that are based on all of the four Brahma Viharas, and uh, um, they do acknowledge that the particular um, one of the Brahma Viharas that you're using as the object to enter uh, jhana uh, can limit the jhana that you can achieve using that object. But uh, um, yeah, the uh, Brahma Vihara, the, the Brahma Viharas can definitely be used to enter jhana. And um, uh, how how should it be? You basically follow the same formula, no matter whether you're using a, no matter what you're using for uh, a jhana. The formula you're following is you're you're using that object uh, until you reach that degree of uh, uh, ex exclusive, stable attention, stable exclusive attention, uh, introspective, uh, powerful introspective awareness, and accompanied by a degree of joy and, uh, and, and pleasure. And uh, then you, you uh, move those into a flow state. So if you were to take loving kindness as an object, you would develop it in that same way. So in the case of loving kindness, what's going to happen is uh, you're going to experience, be experiencing the loving kindness as an object of attention, but at the same time, it's flooding your awareness. And, and so, yes, and I, I, if you're going to get into jhana practice, then uh, by all means, um, experiment with uh, Brahma Viharas. I, I would say practice a lot of the Brahma Viharas until you're really good at generating the mental states corresponding to the Brahma Viharas. When you're very good at generating that, then use it as an object to uh, uh, create access and to move into um, uh, into the jhana itself. Hope that helps, Phil. I see that you're here. Yeah, good. Glad to hear it. I'm probably going to have to pick up the pace here. I don't know if I know how to do that, but I'll try. What role do perceptual and sensory changes play in the path? I've noticed that dry insight practitioners on forums that tend to emphasize techniques like noting, like the Dharma Overground, tend to emphasize shifts 
in their perceptual fun perceptional functioning and senses over reduction of craving and an increase in positive emotions and equanimity like I've seen Samatha Vipassana practitioners tend to, to do. Uh, these shifts tend to emphasize centerlessness and opening up of the visual field and luminosity, amongst other things. Yes, the way these things tend to be phrased seem confusing and unappealing to me. Um, I'm not exactly sure what I'm asking. I'm not sure what you're asking either. But just pointing out an observation that I've noticed that maybe you could comment on, i.e., do the senses of the body operate a little differently before first path and then shift at each path? Is this a weird quirk that noting could have on the brain but isn't essential to practice? So let me deal with that. Be, first of all, um, noting practice, I know it's referred to as an insight practice or a vipassana practice. It's not. It's an impermanence practice. Uh, that's, that's, the, uh, <laughs> that's, what, that's what it is. But uh, there are some weird quirks that arise out of doing that particular kind of impermanence practice. Um, um, but they're not very different than the kinds of uh, perceptual uh, alterations that happen with any practice. Um, what awakening consists of, as well as the higher paths of awakening, what it consists of is a profound shift in perception. It's a shift in perception that results in uh, uh, a, a ch corresponding changes of behavior. So no matter what practice that you're engaged in, as your mind-brain is moving in the direction of this new perception, you know, basically I could sum it up as, as perceiving yourself and the world from the perspective of the five insights rather than from the ordinary perspective of being a separate self in a world of separate objects and struggling to uh, uh, avoid suffering and obtain satisfaction by attempting to manipulate your relationship between self and other. So that's, that's the ultimate perceptual shift. But any practice you do is moving in the direction of that shift. Insights are big leaps in that shift. And uh, stream entry and the subsequent path attainments are uh, uh, order of magnitude shifts, perceptual shifts. But these, these perceptual shifts are something that's happening in the background as a part of the practice, as a result of the practices that you're doing and as a part of the process that's, that's leading you to these larger shifts in the form of insight and awakening. I find that to dwell on these to any degrees is, uh, is, is to be sidetracked and misled. The advice is to accept them, allow them to happen, and this is, this is the kind of advice that uh, you'll find throughout uh, the mind illuminated, uh, whatever comes up, no matter how weird and wonderful it is, and yes, I know you can't, you can't uh, ignore it at first, and, you can, and you're going to give it some attention, but 
as soon as you're capable of, you want it to just let it be there. Let, let it come. Let it be there as long as it wants or needs to be there and let it go when it goes and don't chase after it. And uh, I, I feel like um, I, I just uh, don't see any point at all, any value at all, especially I know that chasing after these perceptual shifts is going, that's going to be you getting in your own way and it's going to interfere with your practice. Um, so I, I, I have a very different take on this than some other teachers, such as those that are being referred to here. Um, a lot of interesting, fascinating, pleasant and unpleasant perceptual shifts are going to occur. Nothing is really gained by dwelling on them or attempting to manipulate them or making a big deal about them or having intense conversations with other meditators over the coffee table about. Okay? <laughs> My point of view. Um, uh, and yes, a few of them are uh, more unique to certain practices than others. Uh, what's interesting about the things that you say here is that those things that we uh, clearly acknowledge in the mind illuminated, they also arise in uh, noting practice. The difference is in noting practice, you're told, you're told to ignore them. You're, you're not only told to ignore them, you want, to just, uh, you want them to go away. You want to note them until they go away. That's the kind of ignoring. And, um, different and it's because it's a it's it's a, because it's an impermanence practice and if you uh, uh, it, it's not a shamatha practice you know let's 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 get to the place of beginning to recognize impermanence nothing else matters forget everything else you know so, but then on the other hand the contradictory part of that is when somebody says says uh, oh, let's dwell on the perceptual shifts that take place along the way. Um, in my own practice, this is a continuation of, of Michael's uh, question. In my own practice, I've experienced a lot of positive benefits of TMI, but I haven't noticed any major changes in the functioning of my senses, except for the description of a completed stage eight with an internal light and sound. I felt an opening up of my mental space and perceptual changes to do with insight-related things, but nothing dramatic to do with my senses off the cushion, like I've read a few people mention. Um, yeah, that's that's great. It's uh, in other words, your practice has been less troublesome than some other people's are, and um, yes, perceptual shifts do are, are more likely to happen. Uh, off the cushion when you're doing practices, uh, when, when you're doing these kinds of practices. I mean, you're, you're doing some dramatic changing of the wiring in your brain. Let me point out, though, there's absolutely no change in your sense organ. There's actually absolutely no change happening in the way information is processed in the specific uh, sensory cortical areas. The changes are taking place at the higher level where the sensory information is being processed on the basis of uh, your, your conditioning. And uh, uh, 
we're conditioned to see things in a particular way, starting uh, starting at birth, if not, well, starting at birth is where the external conditioning really begins. And those of us who uh, assimilate the uh, cultural and environmental conditioning we're, we're exposed to are labeled as well-adjusted. Uh, those who don't are labeled as neurotic or psychotic. But um, uh, perception is an artifact of conditioning. And what we're seeking through spiritual practice is to see through that, uh, 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 see through that particular worldview and way of understanding things that uh, you, you have been taught and to see beyond it and to understand things at a, at a deeper level. So the, the perceptual shifts are happening at a higher level. I don't see how the kinds of changes that we want to take place in our mind and brain could happen without them. Let them happen. Uh, I don't see anything that is gained by dwelling on them to any great degree. And it sounds like things are unfolding for you just the way they should. In my case, I didn't have a lot of the uh, violent energy surges and you know bodily movements, my arms flinging, my body rocking back and forth. My hands twitched. I salivated like crazy. My eyes would do a few funny things, and that was it. So you sound more like you know you're going through a very minor version of the experience of these perceptual shifts. Let them come. Let them be. Let them go. Continue with the practice. Okay, Michael, hope that's helpful to you. Um, Kevin, can you speak about your experience of going through the awakening process as a layperson in a committed relationship? And if possible, and if not too personal, what uh, it was like for your partner to be with someone going through awakening? Uh, um, very... Uh, very, very confusing, uh, very frustrating, um, can be the cause of some uh, deep concern and worry. Um, yeah, it's, uh, but the thing is that, is that uh, my partner was engaged in the same process with the same goal. So I, I think uh, that uh, uh, made it a lot easier for it would be for some somebody else. Um, here we go. You see, you see the partner in question, right? Um, you you do change, and uh, uh, a lot of those changes become you know they they're, they're only initially uh, make you seem so bizarre to somebody who has known you very intimately for a long time. Uh, eventually, there's a combination of them becoming the new norm and them not being as exaggerated as they were before, uh, as they were early on, you know, uh, after a path attainment event has occurred. There's a lot of things about engaging in, in the uh, spiritual path that are quite disconcerting to those around you, at least if they don't understand what's going on. One of the things that people find fairly early on is 
they're no longer interested in the same thing. They don't have the same things in common with their friends as they used to. And inevitably, what happens is they end up forming new relationships with people who are on the same wavelength that they are. And they find it more and more difficult to maintain relationships uh, uh, or friendships with people that uh, they no longer have the interests in the same things they want and are not even experiencing the world in the same way that the other, uh, other person was. In terms of your family and, really, and, and people that you really love, um, this falling away doesn't happen, but there is definitely a change in the kind of relationship that happens. So this isn't something that just that happens when there's uh, when there's awakening. This is something that you're going to, if you haven't already experienced it, gone through this, you're going to experience it um, earlier on in a spiritual path. As your values shift, as, you be, as your life becomes more an expression of the Dharma, um, your relationship with other people are going to change. Um, Got a lot of questions here. Uh, I can't afford to be here all day, but <laughs> I think because the, because the, we had to postpone the, um, um, the 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 first Patreon because of my surgery, or, or, or the earlier Patreon because of my surgery, we have more questions. They're all wonderful questions. But I, I'm going to go for a bit more here. Uh, what did uh, Taylor asks? What advice would you give someone who is suffering from complacency due to recent stream entry? Um, get over it. Um, I my experience it was exactly that. A very prolonged period of complacency. Um, not necessarily a bad thing because uh, because I explored a lot of really valuable things. During that, during that time when I, I ceased to, uh, I mean, basically where my complacency came from and where I think, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't true of you as well, is that my life had been so difficult prior to that. And I was so used to life being difficult. Um, to the extent of, of rarely even giving much thought to the fact that it could be different, that um, with, with stream entry, it's like, oh man, this is so much better than anything I've ever experienced before. Um, who needs anything else? <laughs> um, and, and so a lot of the, a, a lot of the uh, yeah, I, I think I've said enough about that. Um, try, try to, yeah, the best I can advice I can give you is get over it. And I don't have time to go into uh, ways that you could go about getting over it, but uh, except for one, which is observe your complacency with as much mindfulness and clarity as you can. Observe it every time you have a thought about the Dharma or practice or about how great things are or anything else like that. So I'll leave it at that. 
Matthias, what is your take on why there are so few people at and beyond Third Path? For example, Shenson states in his book that he has only met three or four who perhaps were arhats throughout his life. I find it problematic that the higher stages of awakening seem so elusive even for people that spent their whole life on the path. In a nutshell, over 2,500 years, we, by we, I mean uh, Dharma practitioners of, of the Buddhist ilk, have lost our way. The Dharma has, you know, um, what we, things came to the point where the common belief in Southeast Asia was that uh, there weren't any arhats in the world anymore and the stream entrance were extremely rare. Um, that's the degree to which uh, the, the practice and the Dharma had uh, lost its way, except for places like uh, uh, the uh, uh, forest tradition and uh, well there were certain there were certain places where they they kept uh, they kept to the old ways and, and uh, uh, this was not such a problem but the the Tibetan idea that, it, that you know this is going to take you thousands or tens of thousands of lifetime and things like that these are all these are all pointers to to what degree I mean, in the time of the Buddha, arhats were a dime a dozen, and stream entrants were, you know, like raindrops. Um, what we're trying to do, what Shenzhen's trying to do, what I'm trying to do, Shenzhen's approach is to synthesize a completely new uh, meditative approach. My, mine is to go back and find, try to find out what it was uh, about those early ways of practicing that were so incredibly effective. Um, that we've lost the way. Um, I, my experience is that there's a whole lot more people today on third path and as arhats um, that than there were ten years ago or even five years ago. We are starting to find our way, but there are so many misconceptions. There are so many misinterpretations. There's so much misunderstanding in the Dharma that, um, yeah, you know what? One of the biggest obstacles at all, of all is, how can a person who has grown up from the time they were born with the idea that they are reincarnated, that their self is such an, uh, a real essence that it passes from uh, one chunk of meat to another, which is actually literally what reincarnation means, you know, carne, meat. Uh, how can somebody that's grown up with that experience a breakthrough into no self? Well, they can, but man, is it ever going to be hard. And if they do experience a breakthrough into no self, they still, even though they've had a profound realization that they're not a separate self. They still feel like a separate self. So what do they do? They go to work trying to find some way to account for this feeling. And this brings them back to generating a new kind of self. And where do they usually go? Most commonly, they go to consciousness. I am my consciousness. Well, if they happen to study the Dharma enough and see what the Buddha had to say about that, 
Uh, I mean, his he he tore Sati the fisherman's son to shreds for teaching people that what was born again was consciousness. In his teachings on the uh, on the five aggregates, and anytime anybody brought up consciousness, he, he pointed out that consciousness isn't that persistent, consistent uh, thing that you're looking for that you can put the label of of self onto. Consciousness is something that rises and passes away with its object. It's something in which there are tremendous gaps. It's something that takes many different forms, the least of which is depending on which, uh, uh, which sensory content it has at its object in a given moment. You know, so some of these, a, a lot of things that have entered into religious Buddhism from other sources that either preceded the Buddha or that uh, followed the Buddha, uh, that got incorporated into Buddhism, those, uh, I believe, are what have created the obstacles to the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha himself, um, being uh, realized on the kind of scale that they were uh, back before all of these misperceptions had been so deeply ingrained in uh, what we see as the modern Dharma. So that's why I think they have been elusive. Um, and I believe that that's changing. And I believe with, with the convergence of, of science and uh, innovative meditation teachers, uh, that uh, we're well on the way uh, to, uh, to, to changing that, okay? I hope you agree with me. I hope your personal experience is consistent with that. Oh, so many good questions here. I almost feel like I should have gone through and pre-sorted them before we began. Um, There's a question by Kevin Hing, I think, that I addressed fairly quickly. I'm not going to read the whole question, but it has to do with tinnitus. And, um, you know, tinnitus is something, I, I, I have tinnitus. I have, uh, I have tinnitus that's a result of a partial nerve deafness because of working next to uh, a noisy recording instrument in the laboratory when I was doing lab research. Um, tinnitus is something like, uh, you know, uh, pain in somebody who has a chronic pain syndrome, um, for example. It's one of those things that is there. You have to accept it. Uh, you have to learn to allow it to be there, be in awareness. Don't you're not going to gain anything by uh, focusing your attention on it. Uh, focusing your attention on it isn't going to make it go away. The experience you will have is that, uh, you know, I've heard that the human brain learns to tune out the ringing of tinnitus. Yes, you will have that experience in your daily life and in your meditation. But um, practice accepting it. The problem with tinnitus is not the tinnitus itself. 
any more of the problem than the problem of a physical pain is in the unpleasant sensation itself. It's in the mind's reaction to it. Having something that the mind reacts strongly to is a wonderful opportunity. You get to work directly with the tendency of the mind to have this kind of reactivity. And uh, once you overcome that, when you come to the place where the tinnitus is just the tinnitus, and you no longer, your mind no longer has to react to it. It just lets the tinnitus be. You will have discovered at a very profound level um, something that uh, is immeasurable in its, in, is in its value. It's directly comparable to the discovery of the distinction between uh, an unpleasant sensation arising from uh, pain receptors in your body and the mind's reaction to it, which generates the suffering, the, the whole two arrows thing that the Buddha talked about. In other words, you've discovered the first and second noble truths in a very profound way. Dealing with tinnitus, dealing with pain, these, these can all be aids to this very profound understanding of, of the truth of suffering and the truth of the cause of suffering, and also the truth of the overcoming of suffering, too. So, let's see. There's still a few people left, the diehards. <laughs> um, okay, so is, is there a question from one of you uh, diehards that's here that I might address before we uh, wrap this up? That's you know one of the one of the questions that's on the list. Did you get uh, hello, Chilet. Okay. Um, yes, uh, CR Scott. Uh, yeah, um, I was just going to ask, how are you doing? How's your health? How are your projects? What can we do to help you? Okay, well, okay, how am I doing? Um, I'm, I seem to be recovering reasonably well from uh, surgery that I had. Um, It'll be three weeks ago yesterday, except I woke up to discover that there was a, uh, an abscess developing in uh, one part of the incision, the rest of which is healing up quite nicely. Um, on the whole, I'm doing well. I'm responding very well to the uh, cancer med medications. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, work, uh, you know, I... Uh, uh, it, part of your question was how my work on the book was doing. Uh, it's uh, it continues of necessity to be in a gestational stage longer than I expected it to be. Uh, I am reading and thinking about it uh, and finding uh, and, and not really finding much time to actually sit down and put these uh, thoughts down on paper. But actually, I see that as a good thing. The reason for that is something that is really quite good news. And that is that Dharma Treasure is taking over Kochi Stronghold Retreat. That's, in, in, in the long run, that is, that is something that's really wonderful. It's a wonderful thing for Dharma Treasure. It's a wonderful thing for all the Dharma Treasure teachers. 
It's the one thing, it's a wonderful thing for all of the practitioners of TMI uh, who will have a place that they can do solo retreats. Uh, we're going to include a program, and we've already started in January, of, of having resident teachers on site um, in addition to my presence, which will be, uh, there will be somewhat less of so that I can focus on the book. But um, um, as I say, not only do uh, health issues tend to get in the way, this wonderful thing that has happened has um, necessitated me as sort of the key person of Dharma Treasure uh, and also one of the key people of Kochi Stronghold Retreat to all of a sudden have a whole lot more work to take care of because I've got to, you know, we've got to put all the pieces together so this transmission goes, uh, goes as smoothly and the result turns out as wonderfully as we in, envision it, it taking place. What is there that you can do? Well, you know, we need, we, we need some help with this, and we're going to need in an ongoing way. One of the things that we really need is with, the, with this kind of expansion, I mean, the way I talk about it is Dharma Treasure is now moving out of diapers or short pants. You know, Dharma Treasure is growing up. Dharma Treasure needs an executive director really needs somebody who's capable, enthusiastic, you know, totally into meditation and dharma, who has the skills and abilities to serve as uh, an executive director for Dharma Treasure. And we see that as probably being uh, a more of a part-time thing, at least in the beginning. But um, I can't say that for if, if there was somebody that could only do it full-time, then uh, we might roll into that some of the other assistance we need. We need various kinds of on-site management, uh, which is a different kind of skill set, because now this is management of a facility, a lot of buildings that need to be taken care of, management of a flow of people that are coming and going, uh, uh, management of a situation in which there are people in retreats of a month, two months, six months, you know, uh, intermingled with people who are coming from shorter retreats, the management of the flow of resident teachers, meeting the needs of all these people while they're on site, things like that. So if there is a need that we have, it's to get some really keen and capable people on board to begin uh, filling some of these roles. And um, <laughs> so if you are, or if you know of, or if you meet up with somebody that you think um, might, might be someone who could help us in this, then please put them in touch with us. And of course, I wouldn't expect somebody to say, you know, oh yeah, sure, I'll be happy to come and uh, become the executive director of Dharma Treasure. I mean, it would be a kind of thing where, I do expect that person, they'd want to find out, well, what does this entail anyway? And uh, maybe maybe grow into it. You know, I'd love to have that person show up tomorrow so that as we make this transition, they're a part of it, you know, and then they can figure out 
how they would fit into the transition in the long term. Once the transition is complete, what role they might play in the long term. So if you are, or if you know of anybody that fits that description, uh, uh, that's, that's what we're putting out to the universe. Hey universe, I know you've got these people out there and this would be, this would be a wonderful thing for them and really make them happy. So bring us together, please. Thank you for asking. But yeah, this is a wonderful new development and um, we're very excited about it. And the sooner we get some more people on board to help, then the, uh, the sooner I can get back to just working on writing a book and not worrying about anything else. <laughs> so thank you very much for asking that. So I think this is probably a good point to wrap this up. I'm not sure exactly what to do with the remainder of these questions. And maybe Ted and I will talk about this uh, uh, some point in the near future because I really, I don't feel happy with leaving all these wonderful questions undealt with. So we'll see if, we'll see if we can find a solution to that, okay? In the meantime, thank you very, very much for joining me today. I, I hope that uh, you've enjoyed it and found it useful. Uh, I was a little bit more bare knuckles than I usually am, and I, I certainly hope that um, you can take anything and everything I said in the spirit that it was intended and, and uh, not, not be offended by it or, or anything. So I think that's one of the privileges that comes with uh, getting older and uh, approaching the end of your life is you have the right to be blunt and say the things that you, that you think and feel. <laughs> so anyway, thank you once again. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you got value out of it. And I look forward to next time. Okay? Thank you. Thank you.